Welcome to Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations, HispanicMPR.com. This is Elena DelVal, and my guest is Jody Foster, MD, who is author of The Schmuck in My Office. Today we will discuss what to do about difficult people at work. Jody is a clinical professor of psychiatry in the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania, vice chair of clinical operations at the Department of Psychiatry in the University of Pennsylvania Health System, and chair of the Department of Psychiatry at Pennsylvania Hospital. Her clinical practice includes general psychiatry, with a special emphasis on treating acute patients, psychopharmacology, and corporate development that provides support and evaluation services to executives. Jody, welcome. Thank you so much. In addition to all of this psychiatry work that you do, you also have an MBA, and your bio is very long, so I <laughs> had to cut it back. But I mention it because, of course, it's relevant to the conversation that we're having today. We're talking about difficult people at work and in the office. So right. you have that aspect of knowledge, the business and interaction in business, right? I do. What do we mean when we say difficult people? It sounds like it's really obvious, but it's not. It's sort of that intangible personality, that intangible concept. How do we define a difficult person at work? Right. It's not obvious at all, and there's no one definition. And the thing that makes this a tricky topic is that it is – it's essentially idiosyncratic person to person. So, for example, you and I might be standing right next to each other, and we might have uh, the same interaction with another individual, and I might be incredibly offended by it, and you might think it's just fine. And so there are so many nuances and so many uh, uh, inputs to what makes people consider other people difficult that it is by no means, uh, you know, uh, something that's just easy to to take at face value. Is there a significant difference between what we would define as difficult at work or difficult at home or in a social setting in other situations? It's very funny that you ask that because I, I often uh, say in these interviews the truth, which is that when I um, you know sat down to, to begin to write this book uh, and was really deciding on the audience, um, uh, the, the, the joke I have now is that my next book is going to be The Schmuck in My Bedroom because the fact is that um, these interpersonal conflicts that uh, are the stuff of the book can happen really anywhere. It's just that in the workplace, um, we, you know, we tend to be uh, shoved together, and, and these things might come up with a little bit more frequency. And I'm assuming that everybody knows this word, but just to be sure, how would you define schmuck? So uh, I, would, I would define schmuck as just pretty much a jerk. Um, this is, uh, people uh, ask a lot why I, I named the book this, and the reason is because I um, do a lot of these uh, disruptive or difficult workplace situation consultations, and it's extremely common for me to pick up the phone and hear, Jody, I should have called you about this person 10 years ago. I have a real schmuck in my department. I have a real jerk in my office. And the whole real point of the book is that when people let these things fester um, or they don't really understand why uh, people are behaving in a certain way, the tendency is to uh, assume malice and to get angry and frustrated. That makes me think of, and this is certainly by no means is a new concept, but Lately, it seems to be in the news with a greater oomph. This concept of jerks in the office, but even more so the jerk who's the owner or the jerk who's the CEO. Yeah, yeah. And this idea that it's okay because... He generally, in the situations that we've seen in the news lately where there's been sexual harassment, for example, 
that he should be indulged, he should be forgiven, because he's a genius and the company that he has brought forth has such a, an important social and business impact. Is this, is this my imagination, or does there seem to be a greater prominence in the news or a greater prominence in general of this issue? So I'm not sure if, if, um, if there's uh, – there probably is a little bit more discussion about that lately, um, but it is a uh, ubiquitous finding that um, there is a uh, general impression in, in corporate settings that uh, if somebody is a rainmaker or otherwise of high value to a particular setting – that uh, there should be some excuse of some of their behavior. Um, I, of course, uh, absolutely disagree with this. I think that if, if there is any uh, abusive or disrespectful situation, it, it doesn't matter who, when, or how. It, it shouldn't occur. But again, you know, this is, like I said, such an idiosyncratic topic in that what might be considered utterly disrespectful and unacceptable in one culture might be perfectly okay in the next. And so part of this topic is, is making sure you put yourself in, in a setting that's comfortable for you. So how do we do that? There are cultural aspects. There are gender aspects. There are all sorts of issues that come to play. And as you were saying earlier, when we're at work, we're all thrown together, sometimes in situations that make us uncomfortable. Where is the line between acceptable and unacceptable? Where do you draw the line between a difficult person and normal? Yeah. Well, um, so the, the, the thing is that I think that it, it behooves all of us to try to do as much due diligence uh, around a particular culture before we enter it. It's not always possible, though. Um, we, we sometimes find ourselves in situations and learn that there's a, a particular bend or behavior in, in, in a certain setting that, that, you know, doesn't meld with us. And because uh, so much of this interactional uh, concern is personal, I think that um, the definition of what is pathological and what is okay, like I said, could change culture to culture. In psychiatry, somebody is determined to have a personality disorder as opposed to personality traits when his or her um, uh, interactional style interferes significantly with their social or occupational functioning. Um, so... And again, uh, just to bring up uh, how difficult this is, uh, somebody might have a, a uh, personality type that is incredibly unacceptable in one setting, but perfectly acceptable in another. Does that mean he or she has a personality disorder? Not necessarily. The question is, if, is, if they, in all of their settings, home, uh, friends, work, if, if in all these settings they have uh, this interpersonal difficulty, then they probably are more on the disorder side of the spectrum. But what is considered normal and not normal becomes, you know, in many ways a very personal question to an individual and to a, a particular setting and culture. One of the ideas that comes to mind is a generational difference. And, and, of course, labeling is a dangerous thing, but we do see that there are commonalities between demographic groups, any way that you want to slice them by part of the country, by age, by education. There's so many different ways. I, I would – I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I would just say that, that you know, the, whatever the cultural norm is in the culture we sit is sort of the bar that we use to decide if something is or is not aberrant. And, you know, I often get questioned about, well, what about these millennials, you know, and, and, and they're so self-focused and, and uh, you know, they, they, they are not as uh, loyal to a company as, as we used to be or whatever the question might be. And, again, um, I, I approach uh, – this issue more from a um, uh, diagnostic and, you know, 
pathological standpoint, and I'm not, I'm not suggesting by any shape of the imagination that we should be diagnosing people in the office, but my approach um, has to do with, you know, what are these traits and what are these uh, issues that are not merging well with the people around us, more so than necessarily a particular generation or demographic. A behavior, say for example, to look at something benign, individuals who, for example, don't respond when you query them. Say you send someone an email and they don't reply, or they only reply when whatever you contacted them about was of interest. Would that be a disruptive behavior? Well, it certainly could be if it you know, was bothersome to you or in some way affected the functioning of the company. Um, and again, I, you know, the thing about choosing particular behaviors is that there are so many different types of people who can uh, uh, fall prey to those. So, you know, for example, let's say I decided to have a, a chapter in my book on anger. Well, I mean, anger can be manifest in almost all of the types that I discuss, and so it would be very hard to, to differentiate or to help give strategies on how to handle um, anger in, in general as opposed to anger that's coming from someone who is uh, an obsessive type or somebody who is particularly narcissistic or someone who's sociopathic. And so um, the, the premise of, of the book I've written is based upon my experience of doing consults on difficult people and my observation that in the thousands that I've done at this point over a number of years, no matter what, where, or how, over and over and over again, the problems that come to me tend to fall into the same ten buckets over and over and over again. So if someone is not responding to an email, are they being, uh, are they being manipulative? Are they being pouty? Are they, uh, are they you know, uh, being condescending and not thinking that it's worth responding to you, but they might respond to the boss? Are they um, so distracted that they can't even get to their inbox to answer questions? You know, there, there, there are, are reason after reason after reason why somebody might be doing this, and the question as to whether it's disruptive is – you know, again, this personal question as to whether it's disruptive to you and your workflow and, and that of the business. How can you tell when behavior is difficult or disruptive at work? Are there red flags that you should look for? So um, some behavior is so overt that there's no question that it's disruptive. If someone is assaultive at work, if someone is destroying property at work, if somebody is yelling at work, if, if, uh, if someone is embezzling money at work, you know, these are obvious things. The thing that makes uh, difficult behavior sometimes difficult to discern is when it is uh, uh, levied in a more passive, insidious manner. And so I guess what I'm saying is that um, when someone does something that's uh, aberrant, difficult, disruptive, it, it's usually not so hard to pick it up. But where we get into real trouble is when somebody knows exactly where the line is between uh, what's offensive and what's not offensive, and they dance at that gate instead of being more direct. So you might have an interaction with somebody, and you might leave that interaction with sort of an odd feeling of, you know, wow, that didn't necessarily go the way I expected it to. But you don't necessarily know that it was, you know, disruptive to you or your or your work. But then you might go home and find that you can't stop thinking about it. And then you might go to sleep at night and find that you have a dream about it. And you might find that it just continues to irk you. And sometimes it'll take days or even weeks to sort of figure out that someone is is acting in a certain manner. And that happens to all of us. So, you know, in the question of how do you decide what's difficult, I'm, I'm again going to say that this is a personal and, and relatively idiosyncratic thing because, you know, you and I could be in the same room in the same company seeing the same people and I might have the experience that everyone's difficulty and you, uh, difficult and you might not. That makes me think of an article that was just published in the New York Times Perhaps you saw it. It talks about why there are so few women CEOs in the United States. 
and the reporter interviewed women who almost made it to CEO as well as researchers. And one of the tidbits that came out was that there was a perception that women who were forceful in pursuing their goals in the same way as men were perceived by a very large percentage of the public or those surveyed as being aggressive. Yes. Read obnoxious, read unacceptable. Right. How do you integrate that into this discussion that we're having? Well, um, to your point earlier about, you know, uh, what what is a, a norm or not, um, unfortunately, that perception uh, is it's tried and true, and there's a fair body of literature on the fact that a woman who is uh, uh, goal-directed and ambitious and assertive is, uh, you know, labeled uh, a number of negative things, um, aggressive, bitchy, whatever it might be. Um, and, of course, that's utterly unfair. That's a larger cultural question um, than I would necessarily uh, address in the book because the book is more about interpersonal um, uh, interactions. That said, um, everybody interacts in their own way, and we um, have traits, we have personalities, and we bring those traits and personalities to work with us. And so I understand that your question is about gender, but um, I, I am going to generalize it um, to the fact that uh, we bring these traits with us because they're longstanding, they're who we are, and um, like I said, sometimes they do well in a culture and sometimes they don't, but it's, it's I think, our job to try to take a closer look at, at the people who are causing us some trouble or vexing us and try to get underneath the underpinnings of why they behave the way that they do and in so doing, find some empathy for them. So to, to circle back to the female question, I, uh, as a, as a uh, female leader myself, I can tell you that sometimes it, it certainly feels like as though a woman has to be a bit more assertive or more aggressive to, um, to uh, uh, get uh, to a goal that might be easier for a man in the same situation. And the way that I might do that or a fellow woman might do that is informed by who I am and the personality that I, I bring. So someone might be just uh, sort of uh, uh, egocentric and assertive. Some Another person might be seductive. Another person might just be extremely detail-oriented. And I think that um, sort of dissecting the traits that people are bringing to the table informs the relationships that you have with them and what you think about them in general. Do you think that these schmucks that we're referring to, do they mean to be disruptive? Is it their goal? Is that part of their strategy or is it a byproduct? So I, um, that's one of the major points that I make in the book. I, I absolutely do not believe um, that in the lion's share of cases there is any malice behind this behavior. I think that people are behaving the way that they behave, and they don't necessarily have a filter to not behave that way in a setting where the behavior is not acceptable. And the research bears this out uh, in the vast majority of cases of uh, people who are labeled or being disruptive at work, uh, a simple awareness conversation where somebody simply says, you're behaving this way, it's causing upset and trouble here, it's not the way we do things here, and we really need you to stop if, you know, if you're going to be able to be successful here, an overwhelming majority of people will respond with, oh, I didn't know that, and they will self-correct. So I don't believe that people wake up in the morning and say, hey, I'm going to be a jerk today. I'm going to go in and I'm going to upset everyone and I'm going to cause chaos. I, don't, I do not believe that people do that. Certainly not the majority of people, I think, is the point you're making. Yep. How, how soon 
Should you have that conversation? Should you wait and see if it's something temporary? Do you tackle it right away as soon as you see a behavioral as soon as you see a behavior that is disruptive, that is causing discomfort and affecting the work environment? What's the timing? So again, um, this becomes a, a personal question and situation based. And I'm sure at this point I'm frustrating you by saying that over and over again. But um, you know, if someone, let's say, uh, yells at you or humiliates you in a public setting at the workplace, then, you know, it's very clear cut. And if you are feel able, it probably would be a good idea in the moment to pull that person aside and say, what you just did was a problem for me. And here's why. And I don't want you to do it again. But like I mentioned before, there are certain disruptive interactions or difficult interactions that you don't even realize were nasty or whatever for sometimes a period of time so you can't intervene in the moment now if if you have those sort of passive inter- aggressive interactions with somebody over and over again you'll learn to recognize them quickly and at that point you might say you know i know what you're doing because you keep doing it and i th- i think you think that i i i i don't see that you're being rude to me right now because you're cloaking it in in uh, softer terminology but i don't like what you're conveying to me. So I guess what I am saying is that when a person is ready and able to call something out, they should, and they should do so as early as they are able, because without question, early intervention in these situations prevents them from seeding and, you know, infecting uh, the relationship and potentially the entire organization. Should you take the person aside if this exchange takes place in a group setting, should you make it obvious in front of the group? Is the situation dependent? Is that what you're going to say? That's exactly what I'm going to say because, you know, um, so let's say somebody uh, uh, calls me out in public and I feel incredibly humiliated. Do I know with certainty that everybody in the room received it that way? I don't know. Now, if, if I did, then sure, say, well, you can't talk to me like this, you know, in a, in, you can't talk to me like this here or anywhere, and you can do that publicly. But what if, you know, the, the, um, the effect that what this person said on you was personal to you and other people didn't see it that way? In doing that, calling it out in public uh, might make you appear like a difficult person yourself. So I think that being able to read the situation, read the room, read yourself, read the person, these are all necessary inputs to determining how and when to intervene. It, it's always probably easiest and safest to do it in a one-on-one way if you are able. But, you know, to your point, there are some times when calling it out in the moment, in public, back is, is the right thing to do. It's shocking to me how often people, professionals, people who you have a high opinion of, are silent. Yes. I mean, in, in these situations when, when somebody is, is, uh, is doing something publicly, or do you mean in general when, when uh, there's a disruptive person and they don't take action? Well, both. Yeah. For example, I was recently at an event where... The, the person who invited me to the event, and I asked the question directly, said one thing, and when I arrived, it was a very different event, <laughs> the most intense salesy experience I have had in my life. And at one moment, he was going one by one around the table. This is this table all of professionals by his own definition. And when he got to me, I said, I'm sorry, but this is not what I was anticipating. <laughs> and I am actually overwhelmed and unprepared for what you're asking of me. Because he put everyone on the spot. Yeah. But I was the only person to do that at the table. Later, some people confessed to me that they were thankful I had said something because they felt the same way. Right. But nobody else said anything or objected to the process. Right. 
Is that the norm? It's common. It shouldn't be the norm, but it certainly is common. And again, this is one of the goals that I have with this book is that people are afraid to have uncomfortable conversations. They avoid them. And in avoiding them, they wait too, they wait too long to intervene. Uh, conflicts take root and problems happen. And if more people were just able to do what you did, to call it out in the moment when you see it, be direct, be honest, be concise, then there would be less of this trouble. But you are right. People are simply uncomfortable doing it. And what one of the goals of the book is, you know, I'm, I'm so, so clearly you, um, you know, have, have the uh, confidence and the wherewithal to do what you did, whereas the person next to you might not. What I would hope is that um, in, in reading the book and in seeing how helpful it can be to get these things on the table, that even the shyest person or the person who, who really is the most uncomfortable with this, if they just increase or, or, or extend their comfort zone just a little, an inch, and say something that they otherwise wouldn't have said to try to, to air these things and make things better, well, each little victory that they collect will help them get braver for the next time. Uh, believe me, I mean, I didn't start in this field as someone who was sort of as direct and able to call things out in the moment the way that I do, but I, you know, over time saw that doing that ended up making the relationship better. So I, I collected my little victories until I became very confident doing it. And that's what I would ask other people to do. Clearly, you are ahead of the other people who are at that table. It is incredibly difficult sometimes to do that, especially if you're dealing with someone who is charismatic and has a leadership role. Yes. I can understand how difficult it can be to push back. What role do personality types, and we know there are many ways of classifying personality types. Yeah. But, for example, if we go to something really basic like introverted versus extroverted, that can affect the way that you behave and the way that you interact with others. What kind of effect can that have in this process? Well, again, it's, it's, it's just as I said. Uh, the, the introvert is going to be less, probably, less comfortable going up to the charismatic boss and saying, you know, the way that you uh, uh, corrected me or redirected me yesterday uh, was really upsetting for me and uh, made me feel bad about coming to work today and made me feel bad about the job in general. An introverted person is going to have a much harder time doing that. Um, an extroverted person may or may not because, again, we all have discomfort with these difficult kinds of situations. The first three character types that I discuss in the book are defined largely by their charisma. And um, the, the, uh, the, the section is called Drama Kings and Queens. And, um, uh, you know, charismatic people really draw you in. And uh, in, in the three types that I'm describing, what we find is that the underbelly of that charisma can be quite destructive. Tell us about, um, I, I love the Venus flytrap. That's the one that, I just love the, the title. Tell us about those personality types, if you would. Sure. Um, so, like I said, these are, the, these are the ten buckets that I've seen over and over. And what I wanted to reinforce in the book is that these people are not sick. They're not ill. They're generally not personality disordered. They are simply bringing themselves and the way they navigate the world to work. And it usually works for them. Um, however, in um, uh, uh, certain settings, we'll, we'll find that, that, uh, that the underbelly that causes them difficult will emerge even in the workplace. So the first, and again, uh, just to be clear, these people don't have mental illness. They don't have physical illness. That's, that's not who I'm talking about, which is why I renamed all these characters from any kind of psychiatric diagnosis that they might ever have. So the charismatic types that I mentioned are Narcissus, the Venus flytrap, and the Swindler. Um, those, are the, those are the three you'd like to discuss first, yes? 
in the order that you prefer. Okay. So uh, Narcissus is obviously very uh, self-explanatory. This is the um, uh, entitled, self-centered, condescending, attention-seeking individual who inflates his own sense of self-worth and demands to be fed praise and vanity. You know, and again, as with all these, many of these personalities, basic healthy narcissism is a really good thing because if we didn't have a core ego, a core narcissistic ego, we wouldn't try new things. We wouldn't put ourselves in into different situations. But when um, uh, these uh, individuals overestimate themselves, blame others for their shortcomings, take credit for other people's work, you know, uh, cut everyone off, fill the room with their, with their uh, personality, it, it becomes a real problem. Um, the, the Venus flytrap is uh, uh, similarly a very seductive and appealing character, but underneath that, the underbelly is of intense and unstable interpersonal relations. I, I named it the Venus flytrap because of uh, uh, this is a character that might draw you in but spit you out. So these people at their core feel empty and bored and kind of looking to fill an abysmal void. But the manifestation is that there's a cycle of overvaluing and devaluing them. So the relationship will start with them being, you know, extremely complimentary, intense, putting you on a pedestal, make you feel great. But then at some point, that will flip to a devaluation of you. So there's a push and a pull to these relationships, and they're very sticky. And, and this type of character makes people walk on eggshells around them for fear of, of, of their reactions. Again, a difficult character. The swindler um, would be uh, my my version of a sociopathic or more criminal character. So these people can be deeply charming, uh, but with often hard to detect an often hard to detect, to detect core of deceit and manipulation. They don't have regard for rules or others. They know exactly what they're doing as they break rules, and they may be arrogant and entitled and cut corners and fall short on tasks, but, you know, in, in many of these situations, they function just fine and people love them, and then they find out that some something terrible has been going on all along, like, you know, for example, a Bernie Madoff situation. Um, any questions about those three? Oh, it sounds like we have these. As you <laughs> describe each one, I think, oh, I can think of a lot of these examples. Are they particularly common, these three? I would say that um, uh, the uh, narcissus and the flytrap are pretty common. Um, we certainly hope we don't have too many swindlers in our office. But, like, for example, any of us who have hired a, uh, a home contractor um, and dealt with, uh, you know, the promises and, the, and, and lies and whatever, there are certain fields that attract different kinds of characters more than others. Um, so you generally don't see um, uh, really bad swindlers in the corporate setting, but when you do, they're incredibly destructive. So, um, yeah, I would say Narcissus and the Flytrap are, are two very common. Um, probably the, the next most common is um, the Bean Counter character. Um, but I will say that one of the great things about my topic is that I have never once spoken to a group of people who have not immediately resounded with these characters, and almost everyone can call almost every one of them up with great ease. So these are ubiquitously common. Um, so the bean counter, again, this is the micromanaging, controlling uh, person in the office. And obviously some obsessiveness can be really adaptive, but when you have an intense preoccupation with orderliness and perfectionism and control and you're inflexible and you're not open and you have trouble with decision-making because every T has to be crossed and I dotted, um, it's very hard to get things done. So these are the people who hang on to details. They can't see the forest for the trees. And, again, they can really uh, – uh, uh, bring an organization to a halt with, with their need to control the vicissitudes of life. What's Mr. Hyde? So um, Mr. Hyde is less uh, uh, personality than uh, something we unfortunately 
see with some frequency in the office, and that's someone who might be struggling with a an, an addiction or substance use. The, so essentially you hire Dr. Jekyll, and then uh, you find that he flips into Mr. Hyde. The thing that's hard about this is that there's really no single or consistent picture um, with substance use. In psychiatry, for example, you essentially can't make any diagnoses until and, uh, until and unless you've ruled out a substance-induced uh, issue. So they're very hard to pick up unless there are, you know, obvious, uh, you know, uh, uh, scenes of people, you know, passing out or being incredibly intoxicated. So what you have to look for um, if, if with Mr. Hyde is you have to look for a change in behavior from how a person used to act. Um, and uh, that might go in cycles, um, that might change in the course of a week, um, but, you know, it, it's an important rule out whenever someone is bringing an erratic or um, a variable picture to the office. Is that sort of the situation? Something comes to mind with a, a case that was in the news years back. Of course, this was a criminal case, but when you talk about erratic behavior, extraordinary behavior, I think this woman put on diapers and drove for two days <laughs> to confront her boyfriend. I think she was having an, an affair. I don't remember the details. But And then she, did she drive her car into the person's house? Is, is that... I, I kind of remember this. What you're describing that doesn't sound like someone necessarily who's intoxicated or using substances. You're, you're, it sounds to me like perhaps you're describing a, uh, a, a very pathological version of the Venus flytrap, who we in psychiatry would call a, a borderline personality disorder. Um, if you've seen the movie Fatal Attraction, um, that that would be an example of such a person, sure. and and so you know someone who puts on diapers so that she doesn't have to leave the car for two days so that she can go exact revenge on a on a boyfriend. Um, that's uh, that's that uh, sticky push pull walking on eggshells situation gone mad. But how does someone who is capable to that extreme behavior? function within a work environment and no one ever notice yeah this. yeah well, well that's what's so remarkable about these personalities and and you know from my standpoint what's kind of cool about them is that um people who have personality uh disorders and again you know more so than traits um uh, very often, first of all, there's a huge spectrum of how good or bad, uh, you know, uh, the the extent of the personality uh, infiltration in, into life is. So um, there are certain people who can function beautifully in the office and have crazy lives. And then there are people who are, you know, out of control at the office but have, you know, stable friends and stable relationships. There is a remarkable potential capacity to compartmentalize some of these things and and uh, a certain amount of of personal control uh definitely plays in in some of these in some of these personality types which is what makes them so frustrating because um you know that there's a capability of of doing better and yet um that's not necessarily what you see which are the other personalities we've got several more to go right Oh yeah, well yeah. There's ten. So then there's the distracted, who would be the um, uh, sort of nutty professor type, the person who um, has difficulty paying or sustaining attention. Um, you know, this is somebody who who kind of can't close the deal. This is the person when you walk into his or her office, the the papers are piled to the sky, um, and they don't get into so much interpersonal trouble, but they get people really angry at them because they they can't come through on tasks. Um, in, in its worst, most pathological form, this could potentially be diagnosable attention deficit disorder. But, but what I'm talking about is people who most, you know, who just simply struggle chronically with organization, procrastination, time management, and uh, just getting diverted. Um, 
Another character is uh, one that I call the lost, and this is also not uh, one that's necessarily personality-based. This is somebody who's having some uh, cognitive trouble at work. And the spectrum on this kind of person runs from just cognitive slippage to all-out dementia. And um, the, the, the issue at work is that there is global difficulty using one's quote-unquote previous intelligence. Um, and uh, the disruption in the office occurs um, as, as a couple of things happen. Somebody might be aware that they are um, having cognitive slippage, and when they're caught in a mistake, they might get very aggressive and retaliatory. You know, I didn't do that, you did that, whatever it may be. Another thing that happens when people are having cognitive difficulty is that they, what we call, confabulate. They, they um, sort of make up excuses for why they're uh, acting. And some of these stories can become very fantastic. And as you can imagine, uh, if somebody's just making up stories and people are relying on them, it can be an issue. So um, I've seen this quite a bit in um, uh, very senior uh, individuals, see, like let's say in the medical field, um, the, the, the surgeon who wrote the book on whatever his particular specialty is. And now, you know, time has passed. He's been uh, at, at the hospital for 40 years, 50 years, 60 years, and he's incredibly revered and continues to be, you know, a, a, an incredible person, but he's not functioning quite the same way. And what's difficult is that if you send this person for, you know, testing for, let's say, like a fitness for duty evaluation and you do IQ testing, the IQ testing might come out perfectly normal, but it's probably, or it's assumed to be, significantly lower than this person's previous intelligence. And so it can be very tricky, and, and really the best thing to do is to sort of respectfully work with the, patient, uh, with the person on, on what they are, you know, continue to be able to do comfortably and perhaps make accommodations so that they can still continue to, to be in the workplace as long as possible, but just, you know, doing, doing uh, tasks that won't get them or anyone else into any kind of trouble. One of the concepts that comes to mind when I hear those two descriptions are, for example, people who are perhaps promoted beyond their abilities or their experience, their qualifications. Uh, one person who was in the news not that long ago said, for example, this was a journalist, that he was shot at when he was in a combat zone and it turned out that he wasn't. Is this sort of an example of these personalities? Uh, can you describe that a little bit more? You're saying that this person uh, uh, built himself a certain way and... and, and exactly. He, so okay. he said he, he, was, he was in a war zone, but he told the public that his vessel that he was on, I don't know if it was a helicopter. So he extended the truth. Had been shot at, and it later came out that, he, no, whatever vehicle he was on, I think he was flying, was not shot at. Somebody else was shot at. And the scandal was so great, I think he had to step down. I believe he was an anchor for one of the major news programs so um that the the likelihood of that being the result of cognitive slippage is 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 very slim um but that could be more consistent with someone who is a swindler someone who is narcissus who's trying to over exaggerate uh his his worth and accomplishment a swindler who's trying to you know um uh uh slip into somewhere where he doesn't necessarily belong by, again, you know, knowing that he's lying, but, but doing so to achieve a certain goal and not having any regard for, for uh, the problems it might cause. When I'm talking about the lost, um, uh, uh, a case, for example, in the book would be this uh, person who uh, is working in a particular setting for a really long time and is really competent, really efficient, is the go-to person for something. And many, many, many years into the job, she begins to make some mistakes. And the initial reaction of the people around her is to get really angry because they've relied on her for years to do everything right. And now all of a sudden she's getting sloppy. And so people at first are saying, you know, you did this wrong. I relied on you whatever it may be, and then uh, with time, 
discover that, in fact, um, she is in the throes of a dementing illness and can't do it right anymore. And the sequelae that come from that, and I think that once people realize that that's going on, then, of course, you know, they're not angry, then they become concerned. But in the period of time when the mistakes are first starting, a lot of of disruption can occur in the workplace with such people. And, of course, then that's an example of a situation where the person doesn't intend to cause disruption. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. What about the eccentric? Uh, I love the eccentric, uh, mostly because of the uh, the work that I've done uh, in inpatient psychiatry over the years. But the the eccentric is just someone who has difficulty relating to others because of just really unique ways of seeing the world that are often tied to like magic or the paranormal. It's not just that they're different and creative or funky even though they might initially look that way, it's that they have different ideas about things. And, you know, again, another example in the book, which I like to use is um, uh, I once knew of a, again, a, a, a physician who was a perfectly functional physician. But fascinatingly, she believed that every corner of medicine, no matter what illness or disease process we were talking about, that it all boiled down to lead poisoning. <laughs> and she found a way to weave lead poisoning into every single case that she saw. Now, to her credit, she didn't, you know, diagnose it with everybody. She didn't give everybody, you know, excessive lead testing or anything like that. But that was her basic belief. And again, these people don't necessarily cause so much interpersonal trouble as that they they – uh, cause activity in the in the workplace by raising an eyebrow more than anything else, but um, but they do have these different ways of looking at things that um, uh, uh, can sort of change the environment a little bit. Wouldn't many leaders, certainly creative people, big personalities? fit that characterization i think of people like steve jobs or even warren buffett uh Jeff yeah no no these, these these people are not big personalities these are the kind of people who end up working in jobs like um clerks librarians very isolative jobs when when these when such people are um in jobs uh they tend to be in subordinate isolative positions so a creative mind um, uh, in a charismatic person is a very different thing than what I'm talking about in the eccentric. What, what, in, the, in the eccentric, I'm talking about uh, the person who kind of sticks out like a sore thumb. I, a, another example, um, a, an example, just to, just to be clear about this, another example in the book is a, um, a, uh, an assistant who works in a veterinary uh, office, and uh, whenever he is uh, uh, you know, completing uh, the treatment or the assessment of an animal, he glues a a crystal onto the animal's collar because he has a belief that this crystal will aid in in the animal's healing. So I'm talking about magical ideas. So I I do not believe that Warren Buffett or Steve Jobs had magical ideas. I think they had very creative ideas. And like I said, uh, it's not just that these people are creative and different or innovative even though they might initially look like that. It's that they have um, a a different, uh, close to, potentially close to psychotic way of looking at the world. So the operative element there is magical. Yeah, yeah. Outside the norm. Exactly, exactly. What if the person who is at the heart of the disruption is... The boss. Yeah. It it's comes up a lot, and people say to me, you know, how do you intervene with the boss? And uh, then when I say, well, uh, what I'm going to say to you, which is, well, you know, a boss is a person just like anyone else, and if, if a boss is treating you disrespectfully or, or, or uh, treating you in a manner that makes it difficult for you to work at your top capacity, then you should say something to the boss. And I would argue that the person who says something to the boss uh, and gives, gives constructive critical feedback might end up being, you know, really revered by the boss for being honest and might become a really trusted advisor. 
advisor. And the response that I get to that often is, oh, Jody, that's crazy. You know, you can't talk back to your boss. And, and you know, if, if you're really in a situation where you have a, a disruptive boss and there is no recourse for you, you can't talk to him, you can't talk to his uh, uh, supervisor, you can't talk to human resources, then you better get out of there because – there's not gonna there's not gonna be a way to to intervene if 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 all those doors are closed. So in an extreme case, if you have a boss that is not approachable, then you better find somewhere else. Well, just having a boss that's not approachable is is not when I would like you know uh, uh, throw in the towel. I, I would probably. Uh, if the job was important to me, I would, uh, you know, try to take some steps to work around that boss so that I was able to get through my workday without having to necessarily interact with it so much. I might, um, again, use some of the uh, tenets in the book to try to figure out what kind of personality this boss is and, and take some strategies on how to work better with them. Um, but again, if that didn't fail, then there is going to the, you know, the boss's boss or there is going to human resources to complain. There are a lot of different things that you can do before you quit your job. But if a situation is untenable and you there is no uh, opportunity for uh, relief or support from it, then, yeah, sometimes you don't have uh, other choices. You mentioned before the idea of over-promotion, and I think we see that a lot in particularly the bean counter character. So you might have a visionary CEO who wants to be able to just sort of, uh, you know, be in a think tank all the time. And that CEO might say, I really need a detail guy or, you know, a detail person. And so he or she might then make a bean counter the chief operating officer. And what will happen is because the bean counter is a micromanager, they can't do the general uh, uh, operations because they get too fixed on smaller details and uh, cause a lot of strife for the people beneath them. So, so, um, that's a common case where a particular type might have a lot of value, but then get overpromoted and and sort of exit the sphere of of where their value is helpful. How do you deal with a situation like that where you have a person in charge who is not capable, who has been overpromoted, and yet you're stuck? Yeah. What suggestions do you have for those situations? Because sometimes you may like your job, as you were saying, and you don't want to leave, but you have a boss perhaps who is jealous because you're more capable and they're not. What do you do? Yeah, so, you know, I myself have actually been in, in, in a very similar circumstance. And um uh, the first thing you do is is uh, a personal weighing of you know what's more important, um, kind of getting through each day uh, uh, happy and calm, or the job itself. And uh, for me, I decided that the job was extremely important to me, and I really valued it. And um, again, I used what became some of the strategies in the book to deal with this person on a day-to-day basis and to try to avoid the topics that set this person off or avoid the behaviors that set this person off. And again, because I had my eye on the prize of keeping my job, at the end of the day, I ended up sort of outliving this person at the company. Not everybody would want to do that. You know, um, not everyone uh, is so invested in a particular job that they're going to do that. So like I said, with any of these characters, my best advice is to just not jump to this person's a jerk, you know. I, you know, I I got to get away from this person, or this person has to be fired. But in fact, to say, okay, this person is a jerk. Why do I think that? What is it about me that finds this person so vexing? Because a lot of time we have uh, some role in in why why the person is so annoying to us. But what is it about this person that is so vexing? And if if I'm pretty convinced that it's not some personal issue I have and that, in fact, it's their issue, what are they doing? Why are they doing it? What is the anxiety or conflict that's driving them to do that? So, for example, Narcissus being such a, a, a blowhard, at the end of the day, 
that's largely driven by having actually incredibly low self-esteem and needing to kind of keep people away from that uh, for fear of being, you know, discovered as less than. And so if you if you spend some time thinking about who this person is, taking a step back, why are they acting this way? Like I said, what's what is underlying it? Trying to find an empathic spot for what makes them behave in this way that makes you think they're a jerk. And then, you know, trying to do things to actually, like I said, either not set it off or even uh, ameliorate some of it uh, in in the day-to-day operations. You'll make the day-to-day easier for yourself. But there are going to be situations where the people are, are so toxic and so untenable that you will have to make some decisions about whether or not you want to be here. We forgot to mention the suspicious. And we also forgot the robotic. So the suspicious is um, uh, um, the paranoid character. So anyone can feel paranoid. You know, um, being vigilant can be a really adaptive and productive thing because you're always preparing for every angle of a situation. But for the suspicious, um, this, this vigilance and paranoia is a worldview. So these are sort of the conspiracy theorists. They're always on the lookout for harm or exploitation. It's really easy to misstep with them because they're really easily moved to anger or bitterness or jealousy. They perceive attacks very quickly. Um, they, they find meaning in, in things that you and I might consider neutral, and they, and they think that they have found underlying truths about them and jump to conclusions. They, they stay close to the vest. They hold grudges. They're... Um, uh, cold and unemotional, stubborn, sometimes scary. Violence can certainly be a risk with such people. Um, and, you know, I, I, again, I don't know if you've met such a person. I certainly have. And um, interacting with them in, in as concise and direct a way as possible is, is really best because if you dance around what you are trying to say, they're going to kind of collect all those extra words you used and read something else into them. So these are very difficult characters. You really, you, 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 it's like a minefield uh, dealing with a suspicious character at work. And then the final character is the robotic. And, and again, in, in, in its most pathological form, this might be somebody who we would colloquially say is on the spectrum. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people who are just you know, rigid with impaired social interactions, and they, they, they lack interpersonal nuance. Um, and they, they tend to be more comfortable with rigid habits, same routines over and over. Um, they have trouble perceiving emotions. Um, and they have trouble sort of modulating the interpersonal uh, relationship, including their even their vocal pitch, their eye contact, um, things like that. They're also, and here's where the disruption comes in, can be given to tantrums when um, uh, their sort of rigid desires are, are veered from or not met. So they can be quite difficult in the office as well because they, like I said, are so interpersonally... Um, uh, not adept that people have a really hard time understanding them and why they're acting the way that they do. So the bean counter and the robotic seem to have some commonalities. In, in my they could, yes. Up? Yeah, they could, in that um, there's rigidity in both, um, and uh, there's an appreciation for routine. But, you know, the robotic, it's more of um, the, the, the bean counter can be, interpersonal, even interpersonally adept, but at the end of the day, this desire to control um, and, you know, to to correct and to um, uh, make sure everything is done in a certain way is in a broader category than the rigid routine of, for example, having to, you know, sit at uh, the desk in the same way every day and eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich every day. You know, there, there's more concreteness to the rigidity in the robotic personality. Where does the person who is always complaining but never doing anything about it, where do they fall in the spectrum? Because I notice a lot of those people in the workplace that tend to be disruptive. They sit in a corner and there's like this, they're gnawing at hurt. There might be an issue that is bothering people, but they just sit there and they complain and they complain and they complain but they never do anything else 
Well, you've just um, uh, zeroed in on one of the last chapters in the book, which is called, Am I the Schmuck in My Office? (laughs) And uh, the fact is that if in workplace, after workplace, after workplace, everything's wrong, everyone's wrong, everyone's an idiot, everyone's a jerk, um, and the only person or situation that is correct is you, then it is time to notice that the entire world can't be wrong and you right, and it's time to take a look at yourself and what you are contributing to the problems that you perceive at work. Do these personalities combine? Do you have a situation where you have someone who has 25% narcissist yes. and 25% yes. swindler? Yes. Yes, absolutely. It is, it is, it, it, it's almost rare for somebody to neatly fall into one of these buckets. And um, again, I address that as well in the book, which is that, you know, um, again, because these aren't diagnoses by any stretch of the imagination, and these, these are just, you know, traits that people bring. So, um, you know, if, if someone is, let's say, um, both uh, narcissistic and a bean counter, what might be bothering you in a particular situation might be the bean counter qualities uh, today. And on that day, I would look at and, and um, try to employ the strategies for bean counter when, you know, a month from now, um, he or she uh, might – uh, uh, um, bring material to work that's more in line with their narcissism and how that gets in the way. And, and I would use those strategies at that point. So there's great flexibility. But, yeah, you should never – you shouldn't pick up uh, this book hunting for the person that you call a schmuck. You should, uh, in fact, just sort of look at what these different types are. And if there's someone who's really vexing you, um, I can, like I said – Uh, from my experience, pretty much guarantee that you're going to recognize them in parts of at least one of these characters. And in the book, you talk about ways to identify each of the personalities. But more importantly, for us, those of us who are listening and saying, wow, this is overwhelming, (laughs) you talk about how to deal with the personality types in a way that makes help solve the issue that you're having. Correct. My, my premise is that um, it's not like you can say um, uh, person A is a jerk and this is how I must act with a jerk. That is not the premise uh, of, of, of what I believe. What I believe is person A is behaving in a certain way. Let me take a step back and ask myself why they are behaving in that way. Are they having a stress at home? Is this a personality type? If it's a personality trait about them, why do they have this personality trait? What are they, what are they, uh, you know, anxious about? What are they afraid of? And, and, and inform myself on who this person is who acted in this way so that that will inform the way that I either intervene with them if something acute happened or the way that I manage my relationship with them on a day-to-day basis. What suggestions would you share with our listeners, Jody, that they might take back to their work environment and get a handle on this issue of disruptive behavior? There's a whole book worth of discussion, I realize, and it seems very complicated. The more we discuss it, the more complicated it seems But there must be some initial tips that you can share on either how they can identify the difficult behavior or address it if they've already been able to identify it. Yeah, there are certainly some uh, uh, basic tenets um, that I think are applicable to whomever you're dealing with. Um, we, We touched already on the idea that we need to accept that people don't set out to be disruptive. That that that's really the rarity. We also uh, should recognize that people can often be categorized by particular themes and their behaviors generalized. So I understand um, uh, that this, this seems perhaps overwhelming and complex, but if you, in fact, just, you know, drill it down to these 10 and make it 
more digestible for yourself, it's it it like I said, it becomes pretty easy to recognize the 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 situation that you are dealing with. It's really important to recognize that what is disruptive in one culture may be perfectly acceptable in another. So in your workplace, it's very important to lay out the rules of engagement. If I know that I can't do X, Y, or Z, and when in fact I love doing X, Y, or Z all the time, then perhaps I know that this isn't the right culture for me. So if I lay out the rules of engagement clearly, then it's harder for someone who's behaving disruptively to say that they didn't know they weren't supposed to do that. Call out what you see when you see or feel it because early intervention is key and when you call something out try to be concise and direct and not dance around what you have to say be honest with yourself and with other people when you communicate um, and as we mentioned you know when something's bothering you one of the first steps is examine yourself why is the behavior affecting you this way when the person next to me didn't have any problem with it at all um, another important thing to remember is that if you're calling out somebody for a behavior and they don't perceive that behavior as a problem, they have absolutely no incentive to change it. And so it's not going to change, uh, at least not permanently. And in this case, the, the only recourse that you really have is to attempt to set boundaries around that behavior. So, for example, as I mentioned previously, by laying out rules of engagement. Um, and, uh, you know, the last thing I would say is it's always important to um, – uh, question, am, am I the one being the jerk here? And of course, the big challenge is that change is difficult and slow. Right. Thank you, Jody, for joining us from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Thank you for having me. And to our audience, thank you for listening to Jody Foster, MD, who is author of The Schmuck in My Office How to Deal Effectively with Difficult People at Work who discussed what to do about difficult people at work. Please share your suggestions, questions, and ideas by leaving a comment on the HispanicNPR.com website. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can email me directly at editor at HispanicNPR.com. That's editor at HispanicNPR.com. <laughs>